Companies are more dependent than ever on third-party providers, and that means they need continuous visibility and monitoring of their external partners' threat landscape. If that sounds like your company, you want to join Looking Glass product manager Brandon Dobrik and Security Ledger Editor-in-Chief Paul Roberts, that's me, on March 20th at 2 p.m. for a webinar on developing round-the-clock third-party advantage. Brandon and I will discuss what you need to assess vendors in the modern cyber environment and provide an introduction to Looking Glass's cyber situational awareness platform, which provides you with a map of your cyber risks so that you can identify vulnerabilities before your adversary does. To learn more, point your browser to securityledger.com slash third party. That's one word, securityledger.com slash third party. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, number 134, the discovery of a compromise of the PHP extension and application repository, or PAIR, package manager last month. It's just the latest in a series of attacks on popular open source projects. How did hackers pull it off, and what was their objective? Sam Bisbee, the CSO of the firm ThreatStack, joins us in our second segment to talk about one theory behind the PAIR hack. But first, the world has adapted itself, albeit unhappily, to a U.S. president accustomed to making outrageous or factually inaccurate statements. But what if even the most temperate and measured leader could be made to say outrageous and inflammatory things? How destabilizing might that be to societies and to economies? That's a risk posed by so-called deep fake audio and video, which uses advancements in deep learning, a kind of artificial intelligence, to seamlessly manipulate both audio and video content producing real-seeming forgeries. Thus far, deepfakes have been the fodder of celebrity pornography sites and academic conference demonstrations, but experts like our first guest, Vijay Balasabramanian of the firm Pindrop, say that deepfakes are almost certain to become more common and pose risks not just to social stability, but also to a wide variety of image and voice-based authentication technologies. In our first segment, Vijay and I talk about the evolution of deepfakes and the risk posed by convincing audio counterfeits. Uh, Vijay Balasubramanian, I'm the CEO and founder of Pindrop. And Vijay, good place to start, I guess, would be to tell us a little bit about what Pindrop is and what you guys do. Yeah, so Pindrop is a company that focuses on voice authentication and voice security. Our origins are in the call center where, you know, a lot of voice traditionally used to exist. So, you know, the call centers in the U.S. get about 47 billion calls that come into it. And so what we do in that space is rather than uh, what is currently used in banks, insurance, retailers, which is when you call, they ask you a ton of questions. What's your mother's maiden name? What's your date of birth? We replace all of that. So anything that you know is something that someone else knows. So we replace that with who you are based on your voice, what you have based on your device and what you do based on your behavior. So those are the three things. So we provide a multi-factor authentication solution for uh, these organizations. And as a result, we've analyzed about 1.1 billion voice interactions, not only good ones, but we've also seen a plethora of attackers who are trying to beat these systems by doing all kinds of things with their voice. And so that's brought us a lot to the newer age of voice, 
where voice exists in a lot of these IoT devices. Uh, and so we're applying a lot of our technology in these newer spaces as well. When we're talking about a, a voice biometric, in essence, or a voice identifier, um, what types of things are we talking about? I'm, I'm sure that there are patterns to how people speak and say specific words and so on, but I'm guessing there's probably a lot more to it than that. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot more. So, you know, what we're fundamentally looking at is the anatomy of what is the systems that produced your voice. So this is fundamentally the back of your throat, your entire oral cavity, uh, your entire nasal cavity, and then your mouth and nose uh, combined, right? So all of that, uh, fundamentally, you have, because of the way you've grown up, you have certain things, uh, the way your throat is constructed is very, very different than the way anyone else's throat is constructed. And, you know, it's easier to visualize a fingerprint or a, a face biometric because you can see it. In this particular case, a lot of your voice print is hidden uh, but it is unique to you. And and how are companies using this now? I mean, I'm I'm guessing you know I call banks, uh, you know, or brokerages or vendors that I do business with for support issues. And you know, as you said, mostly they're identifying me with some kind of question and answer, some knowledge based authentication. I I haven't yet to my knowledge, encountered a supplier or a vendor who's just saying, nope, you don't need to tell us anything. We know it's you because of how you're speaking. So right now, is it are they doing the voice printing and still asking the knowledge-based questions? Or is this voice-based auth- authentication still pretty, pretty new in terms of its uptake? So voice authentication is still pretty new, but there are a lot of systems out there, a lot of organizations out there that are using it. But they're using it in conjunction with questions, not because they need you to speak, but actually for a very, very interesting thing. So, you know, when you call a bank, you're almost speaking immediately, right? So you call in and they say, how can I help you today? You're immediately saying, hey, uh, you know, I, I lost my debit card. I need a new one mailed to this particular address. So you're speaking and you don't need a question to really speak. What's happening is, you know, in a lot of places where we're implemented, one of the fundamental reasons they've implemented us is because questions are horrible, right? And everyone knows the answers. But the fact that if they reduce the number of questions, they can actually get you down to asking, how can I help you today? We have uh, several organizations who used to ask you four questions and take about 40 seconds authenticating They've dropped down to one question, so you still see a question, and they actually tried going down to zero questions, but it was really, really interesting. Uh, People who were 18 to 25 were perfectly fine as long as they got a prompt that said, hey, this call, uh, you've been authenticated based on your voice, device, and behavior, so we're going to let you through. But people who were over 40, it was very interesting. They immediately said, uh, they immediately started calling the bank back saying, hey, I called, I wanted to do a wire transfer and you just said something and you then did my wire transfer. You guys have been hacked. And so a lot of these organizations are asking one or two questions because of usability rather than really depending on those questions. We're talking today, obviously, about the deep fake issue I think in popular thinking or popular culture, we think of this mostly in the context of video. But um, as I understand it, voice deepfakes are a big problem as well. Uh, Talk about that. 
Yeah, you know, voice deep fakes are actually a harder problem because with video, you have almost two dimensions, right? You have the video going on and the audio, and you can use all of the async that's happening between the two for you to detect something is off. But when it's purely audio, you have to detect just from that audio that there is some kind of fake going on. And you can imagine, right? You could have pieces of propaganda audio sent out or pieces of audio that potentially are incendiary sent out. Right now, most of most people are using it for parody videos and having fun, but it could get really bad really quickly. Particularly in the sort of uh, very tense, uh, polarized political environment we're in now, nobody's giving anybody much of the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Also, I think there's another angle here, right? Which is we're in a world where uh, we want instant gratification and instant reaction, right? Like that's just the world we're in because of the amount of information that we get. We don't have time to process and say, does this make sense? We're almost immediately wanting to share that, like that, send that across. And so it's actually a combination of, you know, you're absolutely right, the political climate that's out there, but also just the world that we live in right now. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that recently just with, you know, something happens or there's a video that shows up that, you know, appears to show one thing and there's this huge reaction to it, you know, and then, you know, as days go by, you know, more parts of the video or audio emerge and there's this kind of like, huh, you know, we all we all just went on this journey, you know, this huge visceral online reaction and opinions and analysis and all this kind of follow on stuff. And then we kind of step back and we have to reframe the whole incident and be like, well, Hold on. The, the truth of that is different. And we just had this huge, you know, kind of reaction to it. I mean, it's, I don't know, man. It's yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> My dad used to tell me, if ever you find yourself negatively reacting to something, sleep on it, right? And I just right. think, you know, it's, right. it's, it's a bit of that, right? Like, we just don't, we just don't want to sleep on it. We want to be the first person to send it out. And there's that, you know, notion right. of instant uh, reaction that, uh, right. you know, really uh, adds to this effect. And and judgment often yeah. and judgment, you know, we yeah. not only want to circulate it, we want to tell everybody what the importance and meaning of it is. When we're talking about deep fakes, both for video and audio, like what, is going on behind the scenes. So how do you fake somebody's voice in a, in a convincing way? I guess you need samples of their actual voice to start with, but but then what happens? Yeah, so what happens is you need samples of their voice. Again, it depends on how long of a sample you have and what's the recording quality, right? So you, at the beginning of this podcast, said, you know, this is going to be MP3 and WAV. If you have WAV, you have, you know, some of the best quality audio, and therefore you'll need much lesser audio. But you can actually synthesize someone's voice or get a machine to synthesize someone's voice based on just, uh, you know, anywhere between three to five minutes of them speaking all the way to about a couple of hours. Beyond that, you really don't need much more than that. But once you have that, what you're fundamentally doing is you're getting a machine to start figuring out how do I start sounding like this person? So what it, the, the machine is doing is it's creating an acoustic model of how this person sounds, and it's trying to get it to sound as close to that as possible. And so, you know, you have, and it's called a deep fake because you're using essentially a deep neural network to create this kind of a fake. And so it's fundamentally trying to recreate 
your anatomy as closely as possible. Uh, but it's not creating it from a standpoint of I need to get a perfect model of Vijay's throat. It's saying I need to get a good enough model that if any uh, casual observer hearing that, they'll think it's Vijay, right? And so it's optimizing for that function. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's how it's creating this deep fake audio or video. And and in terms of creating the speech, is that something that you would um, sort of program in what you want the voice to say, and yeah. the, you know, as and it would then say it. Yeah, exactly. And so we ourselves have a voice synthesizer tool where you could you know take any celebrity that you want, uh, you could type any sentence that you like, and say synthesize, and it would synthesize it, and you can actually hear that voice. Uh, and it will sound, you know, fairly close, depending upon the person, it'll sound fairly close to the person's voice. And the more voice you have, it'll start sounding better and better. Now, when I think about prominent speakers like, you know, uh, let's just take the last two presidents, uh, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, they both have very distinctive speaking styles. Yeah. And let's take President Trump. He, he uses a lot of asides and quips, you know, that he works into his speech. Like, how would you do that with a computer voice? You know, is there like a drop down, you know, that you would select and, and that part of the speech would be would be voiced and articulated in a different way? Or is it straight speaking without those types of verbal eccentricities? Yeah. So, you know, you can add in uh, eccentricities as well. Uh, you know, if you look at Google Duplex, which is a completely synthesized system, they use what are known as disfluencies, things like, mm-hmm, Right. And so, you know, when when this Google duplex engine was trying to uh, book an appointment and when the person who was booking the appointment was confirming everything, you know, a normal robot would have probably said, yes, you're right. These are the right details. You know, this this Google duplex uh, had a little flair and said, "Mm -hmm," right. And so you can do things like that. But, you know, uh, with with President Trump, right, you could use specific phrases that he uses or President Obama, you could use specific phrases that he uses and add them into the sentence to Mm -hmm. make it sound very much like him, right? And Mm -hmm. so if you say this is great or this is huge, you could pretty much put that sentence in uh, and it will sound exactly like that. But you can also add things like disfluencies and flair uh, into a conversation to make it sound even real. Okay, so we can think about sort of the political mischief or the disinformation campaign as one use case. But I mean, how are cyber criminals trying to leverage this technology or or are they yet even trying to leverage this technology? Yeah, so the really interesting thing is we analyze about 1.1 billion calls every single year. And so uh, we, uh, you know, we've got about $350 million worth of fraud just last year alone, right? And so when you start looking at what these attackers are doing, they're not quite there yet in terms of using voice synthesis systems because the bar is kind of low, right? They don't have to yet. And so uh, right now, what we see them use is a lot of distortion. What I mean by that is, let's say I'm a male fraudster and I'm trying to go after a woman's account. I obviously can't sound like a woman. I can get a falsetto, but that only goes that far. So they actually use distortion technologies to increase the frequency of their voice sound more feminine. In fact, you know, uh, if you come to Pindrop, every conference room is named after a bad guy that we've caught. Uh, And, uh, you know, one of the conference rooms is called Hmm. Chipmunk. 
and chipmunk is this bad guy who goes after women's accounts and occasionally makes a mistake and he sounds like alvin the chipmunk and that's why they call him chipmunk right so <laughs> no, but but we see that these fraudsters are starting to play around with a lot of audio tools and really really good ones and so it's the, the day is not far that they realize oh i can now start using these audio tools to start creating very very specific attacks against people the second part of the equation is how do i get your voice you're going to start moving into an age from data breaches to audio breaches right where people who store audio need mm-hmm. to be even more vigilant or need to not store audio or need to do something to make sure that they protect that audio because you're going to go from data breaches where you know using data impersonate you to audio breaches where using the audio you've used against your iot devices or something else i can take that and now create a synthesis of your voice and then start sounding like you and if you look at the art of voice synthesis right now you know a lot of tools are out there where you give someone's voice model and then you type a sentence and then the machine will speak that sentence but mm-hmm. the next stage is someone else speaking it goes through a voice transcoder and the voice that comes out of it is the target voice right sure and yeah and and we've already started doing that as well and we do that as well in the sense that we've seen how do you construct something like that and in our in our uh, efforts we're doing all of this to make sure we have the detection mechanisms to protect against things like that what is the process by which you identify a, a fake voice from a real one Yeah so it's actually a very interesting one right when we heard the original set of deep fakes we were like man this is going to be hard but the really interesting thing is if you actually look you know you talked about uh, storing the audio as a wave when you store the audio as a wave you have 8000 samples of your voice every single second and then in a 5 minute piece of audio there's a lot of samples of your voice what we started looking at is you know you have human evolution on your side millions of years of human evolution so your voice and your entire human anatomy can only exist in certain configurations and it can only move in certain configurations so let me give you an example right so when i say hello paul i'm saying hello hi vj <laughs> so you know at that point in time my voice is uh, wide open but when i say paul it contracts down that speed at which i can do that there's only a certain speed but these machines don't care about things like that they're trying to make your voice sound right but they're not worried is it correct based on human anatomy mm-hmm. and so based on that what we're able to do is look at these small little glitches where you've said hello paul way too quickly for any human and we we run into i mean when we re-extract the anatomy that produced this voice we run into crazy situations like the only way this voice could have been produced even though it sounds remarkably like president trump is if the person producing this voice had a 7 foot long neck and his you know vocal cords were rapidly moving across 7 <laughs> feet that's the only way he could have produced this right and so and and you know <laughs> in fact one of our uh, teams call that calls that the giraffe man effect right where you know the deep synthesis don't do right. many many things even google duplex when it uh, utters this thing called fricatives uh, which is when you're using very very sharp uh, uh 
you know, frictionful, like when you say friction, right, your mouth is, uh, you, you're sending your voice through a very narrow passage. And so in each of those situations, again, mm-hmm. the anatomy could only produce acoustics in a certain way. And we're able to look at those glitches mm-hmm. and we're able to figure out that something is wrong. Even though this sounds like the person, mm-hmm. it's definitely synthetic. So there's been legislation proposed. I know last session, Senator Sass introduced some, albeit right. at the very last minute, to uh, make the creation of deep fake video, and I'm, I'm guessing audio also, illegal or to tightly regulate it. And um, he said he wants to reintroduce that legislation. What are your thoughts on that as an approach to this problem? Yeah, so I think it has to be in conjunction with technology. Because if you just do, uh, you know, just laws, uh, what you're going to target is the lowest common denominator, right? People creating parody videos and things like that. That's what you're going to target. The malicious attacker who is, you know, operating based on the power of a nation state really doesn't care about your laws. And more importantly, how do you detect that something is a deep fake unless you have the technology to do so. So I think it needs to be in conjunction. Also, you know, these these laws can get written in a way that actually prevents, you know, good people like Pindrop and other companies that are really, really working hard to detect these deep fakes. Like we have to create deep fake content to see if we can detect them. But if just creating that content puts us in jeopardy, then, right. you, you know, you're going to have more right. and more people back out of it, right? And the only way to, to, to get ahead of this is for the good people to bandy together and really make a difference. Right. It it might help with the sort of can- dirty campaign tricks, you know, where, where you're talking about domestic actors, but that that's probably the least of our problems. And of course, you, you start to get into, you know, are we outlawing uh, impersonators who have, you know, long and and generally positive um, history as comedians and and so on. So you wanna you don't want to make what Saturday Night Live does illegal. Now the Department of Defense has announced or announced within the last few weeks that they have developed some tools to spot um, deepfake videos. I think I don't know if Pindrop had any role in that or your research. But what is your sense of of what the detection capabilities are right now? Uh, when I talk to our researchers here, at least the state of the deepfake audios, you can detect them really well, right? Again, right, it depends on how how high quality the audio was of the source and how long do they have and all of that. But invariably, most of these things, if you have a five-minute sample of a deepfake audio, you're able to detect that. Uh, You know, the Department of Defense is also looking at similar things, right? They're looking at glitches in the video, similar to the way we're looking at glitches in the audio to determine, hey, what's happening, right? So things like eyes blinking at weird times when they're not supposed to be blinking at weird times. Uh, Things like the color of the eye suddenly changing, uh, you know, or, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a pupil on a, uh, on a closed eye because the person blinked, but the eye hasn't, you know, uh, gone away. So all (laughs) of these two things, and that's the part, right? Which is when you look at a video, you are pretty much, um, uh, even though it's 60 frames a second or how many ever frames a second, you're you're just seeing quick snapshots. And so your brain is really, really good at blurring all of the anomalies. In fact, your brain is so good at blurring the anomalies 
because it doesn't want you to constantly keep thinking of anomalies, right? And the, the, the same thing it does even in audio, right? So for example, even if you have a lot of noise and someone says hello and world and things like that, your brain oftentimes confuses your ears into hearing certain words because it tries to gloss over anomalies. Mm-hmm. Algorithms can do the mm-hmm. exact opposite, right? They can really look for anomalies. And especially when you have so much data that you have in a video and an audio, I think at least the state of videos and audios that are that exist right now, you can actually detect them. But this is always going to be an arms race. My final question would be that, you know, obviously there's a there's a positive side to all this too, which is, you know, we are moving into an era where, you know, voice-based uh, interaction with devices right. is becoming more common, uh, you know, Amazon Echo and Google Home. And so there are more voice-controlled interfaces. Generally, right now, these are not user-specific, so there isn't really a sense of authenticating as a user to these systems. Is there a part of this that gets to that problem of really doing very unique fingerprints for or voice prints for each user so that you can can, um, individually interact with these devices? There's a very simple principle in security, right, which is defense in depth. You cannot replace, let's say, a single factor like password with another single factor like voice. You'll run into the same issues, which is where, right, what we believe and what, you know, we we advocate for is multiple factors, right? So don't just use the voice, right? In our case, we use voice. We use the fact that you typically have a mobile device accompanying you. And so you can use the benefit of that. And then you have your behavior, right? The way you type uh, on your mobile screen or the way you hold your steering wheel. There's a lot of other characteristics that you can use. And therefore, we believe in multiple factors because getting those multiple factors to all sync up, you raise the bar so much and every single factor raises the bar exponentially, right? And so the more factors you have, as long as it's within reason and within cost, you can then build a system that's really, really hard to beat. Uh, You know, we're in a brave new world where it actually requires Mm. us to look at the information, not react, and determine if this is right or wrong, uh, and then make the reaction. And so, you know, I think uh, we need to move to a more patient world. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting future that we have ahead of us. Vijay Balasubramanian, uh, CEO of Pindrop, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for having me. Vijay Balasubramanian is the founder and CEO of the firm Pindrop. Up next... Last month, the maintainers of the Pear Package Manager took down their official website after they found that someone had replaced the original PHP Pear Package Manager with a modified and malicious version in the core Pear file system. Pear developers suspected that the website had been serving the installation file contaminated with malicious code for at least half a year. But how did the attack happen? One theory, that attackers used a so-called data deserialization attack. In our second segment, we're joined by Sam Bisbee of the firm ThreatStack to talk about the pair compromise and why data deserialization attacks are a growing threat to development organizations. 
Sam Bisbee, Chief Security Officer at ThreatStack. ThreatStack is a cloud-optimized IDS, which we run as a SaaS platform for the last roughly five years, where we're monitoring production cloud workloads to find risky behavior, active breaches and incidents. And in 2018, we uh, actually launched our cloud SecOps program, which is our security team actually managing the tool and solution on behalf of our customers acting as effectively a uh, weather center across all of our customers to identify active threats and uh, risky production changes that our customers have made. And I mean, I think one of the things that really has come to the fore in this brave new world of cloud-based applications, cloud-based infrastructure, of course, is the deep reliance on open source components. With that comes a fair amount of risks, software supply chain risk, open source risk. And you guys wrote a blog post talking about just kind of the most recent example of this, which was a still mostly mysterious compromise of the PHP extension and application repository, aka Pair, that was uh, in which apparently a, a package manager, a very widely used, uh, was found to have been replaced with a, a malicious uh, package manager and uh, potentially downloaded, installed, deployed on uh, any number of pair users' uh, environments. So you have a, a legitimate component replaced with a malicious one, and and uh, it took a while for people to notice it. You guys wrote about it in the context of a particular type of uh, risk or threat uh, that's kind of climbing its way up the OWASP, which is data des- deserialization attacks. Just for some of our listeners who might not. Uh, who might be the less technical bent, but when we talk about data deserialization, um, what, what is that process and, and why why does it happen? Absolutely. So deserialization is basically taking the uh, machine-friendly uh, text format, you know, whether that's uh, a string or binary, however you want to think about it, and that's how it sends your data or your JSON file or whatever your web request is, over a network wire, um, down to a disk. And what's tricky about this is most software validates data and most business logic validates data after it's been turned into that, you know, binary text format or whatever format you're using into um, the data structure in your application. So Mm -hmm. if you're in the PHP world that's taking JSON off disk, let's say, and turning that into a PHP object for you to interact with. Um, during that step, though, is where uh, there's typically less security checks, uh, and most developers aren't implementing enough validation. But in this case, with the FAR file, um, this one we can't really hang around engineers' necks as much as OWASP loves to do that. This was really a side effect of how the archive files themselves interact with the PHP runtime. This was really trying to target larger deployments where you know developers aren't typically going in and opening up and trying to understand how their package manager works or what those third-party dependencies are that they're pulling in because uh, they just want to use them and not have to you know think about it too deeply. They're trying to kind of move faster. Um, so this is a level of due diligence that they probably wouldn't normally do. Sure. So we, we've got this um, 
sort of software, open source software supply chain compromise. We don't know exactly how widespread. We don't know exactly how damaging. Why is ThreatStack of the opinion that this particular type of uh, attack vector may have been played a role in, in this compromise? So we're really just working off of public data. So we don't know how the pair uh, systems themselves were compromised. But what's interesting is uh, the only file it looks like that was injected with this malicious reverse web shell was um, a FAR file, right? And so basically this was mm -hmm. the hardest step in that Black Hat research was how do you actually deliver the malicious archive onto the target system? And so, you know, it would appear that based on the information that's been made public was that this was some form of, you know, poison well or supply chain attack either across a wider swath of environments using FAR or potentially targeting, you know, one environment where sure. the attack knew that FAR was being used and particularly this this one file. Right. We've seen that before where, you know, it it, it might seem like a widespread attack. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a population of, you know, millions of of downstream users. But in fact, there's a there's either a small handful or even one user in particular who's the real target and and this is just a, an easy way to get to them. Absolutely. And, you know, and this is my personal speculation, but whenever I see, you know, a injected file like that, where it's a single IP address, uh, which was the information that came out afterward, was that it looked like there was a single IP address embedded into that archive. Right. So it didn't sound it didn't look like the attack infrastructure was intended to be online and live for that long. Mm -hmm. Or we don't or, you know, maybe the IPs were being changed out and the Attackers have longer term access to the pair systems. We just, there's not enough public information to know. But, you know, it was interesting. There was just a single hard-coded IP address in that payload. Hmm. So um, when it comes to these deserialization vulnerabilities or attack vectors, how do you detect these and uh, protect yourself from them? What is the... Um yeah, what's the best method of doing that? So I think most organizations are already doing a lot of the right things at build time. You know, in the last three or four or five years, uh, a lot of attention has been paid to build time security and checking for known vulnerable code, attempting to exercise applications in the build pipeline or in pre-production environments to determine whether or not they have malicious code or anything else going on in them. So, you know, a lot of those checks and tests are finding issues like this. You know, from our perspective, it's yes, it's not that you shouldn't be investing in build time. Those are obviously good things, but too many security programs are focusing purely on build time uh, as an enforcement and a gate, when really you still need to be looking at runtime to understand from a application layer and the underlying host and infrastructure What's actually happening in this production environment? I don't think that many security teams, if teams are even lucky enough to have a security team member, are going to win a battle in which they need to go identify and find every vulnerability type. To your point, the research is just coming too fast. And so it's really about figuring out what are classes of behaviors and classes of vulnerabilities that we can start detecting and wiping out from our infrastructure. So... One example of that that we've worked with customers on a long time is typically when you're running a Java application or PHP service or whatever it is, how it runs from an OS perspective really doesn't change. Apache only ever forks or runs Apache itself or PHP. Uh, you know, if you see your Apache web server starting to run Perl, uh, which it looks like was the case of this attack, it's red flagged and you can detect that. 
some environments will try and get really fancy and going into the application to detect the attack. And there are absolutely benefits to doing that. And at ThreatStack, we actually made an acquisition of the space uh, back in November. So we believe very strongly in things like RASP and going to the application. But there's still something to be said for looking at it from the OS point of view, where that Linux kernel is still kind of that single source of truth in these software-defined-only environments. So understanding from the outside-ish perspective of how is this actually behaving and what's happening, it doesn't matter whether it was data deserialization, this specific FAR file, some other remote code execution, how are you going to detect when there is a weird network connection, when there's a weird software piece of software running on that system. Mm -hmm. And too often people will think about O-days and fancy attacks like that. Far more interesting is what you'll find your engineers doing in that production system. Ops is well-intentioned, but they have a habit of showing only a piece of the picture. Far more interesting than trying to find that weird vulnerability uh, is finding out that you're running your production Java application as root out of the temp directory. Those are the bigger risks that companies need to go and tackle. Right. Right. You're never going to be able to remove all risk from your environment at build time. You can get really close, but then you start to get diminishing returns. And on the issue of you know the open source supply chain security, I mean, I think these types of stories, and we, we've had other ones recently on malicious maintainers, you know, folks who kind of took over static uh, open source projects uh, for, for malicious purposes, you know, contributed some some legitimate stuff, took control of the open source you know project, and then put some malicious uh, components in. Uh, I mean, my, my guess is these stories are somewhat terrifying to organizations that rely heavily on open source, especially when you have a, a major component like Pair uh, that's compromised. Is there an easy way uh, to assess how vulnerable any of the components you're using might be to this type of uh, shenanigans or manipulation? Are, are there guideposts that you can use and say, hmm, we might want to find a different component uh, or write it ourselves because I just don't feel confident in this particular open source community or project? It's a great question to ask. I always hesitate to answer around things like maturity, uh, maturity of the project and how it's governed because the reality is that uh, software engineering and application teams are being driven at to faster and faster velocities. And the acceptance of you can just go pull anything from GitHub you want so long as it's got the right license file, I don't really see that paradigm going away. And so it's really up to application and product teams to figure out what are the reasonable um, gates and controls that we can put in place? You know, maybe it's not realistic for a couple hundred uh, person company to perfectly implement application whitelisting, but maybe there are certain critical dependencies in that software chain that they can pin to specific version numbers or hashes. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that while kind of all the ephemera is, uh, well, that edge stuff is changing at a higher velocity, they can make kind of core bets that, you know, those big core libraries aren't changing as fast. Reality is that most teams don't have the expertise to do this. And so it really then kind of falls onto that coordination between that DevOps, your release engineering function and the engineers to say what's reasonable for our environment and what can we do. Um, and, you know, I think if teams are looking to remove those what we would describe as obvious hygiene issues or obvious risks at build time, 
you know, you probably don't want to install that software with a million known CVEs or that's got a bad license <laughs> file. You know, that's fine. And then really just look into production because um, focusing on the things that matter in production and working out from there and that type of risk-based threat approach is going to let those teams focus on the fewer things that matter uh, versus every CVE. Yeah. Um, I guess your, your so, customers are probably a self-selecting population, but do you see evidence that they actually, that those conversations are happening uh, within development organizations of saying, you know, hold on, you know, let's look at, look at how many CVEs there are for this component. And, you know, I don't think we want to use it. I don't think many teams have reached that level of maturity. I think that there's also, you know, CV is an incomplete data set, especially at the kind of sure. application. Um, uh, third-party SDK level. Um, and so I think teams are basically throwing out, you know, whatever scanner they can find, whether it's something that's built into their CICD solution or they're going and pulling another third-party vendor. They're basically installing that into the build pipeline and saying, good enough, uh, this will hit a high enough efficiency rate. And then if there's anything else bad going on, we'll catch it elsewhere. Because teams don't have the ability or time to keep up with the rate of this stuff being published. Um, Sam Bisbee of ThreatStack, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger podcast about the pair compromise and data deserialization attacks. This was great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sam Bisbee is the chief security officer at the firm ThreatStack. He was here to talk about the compromise of the pair open source project. 